All right, well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Across the Aisle. I am former State Senator Bobby Zirkin, and I am incredibly proud and honored to be here with my very good friend, Senator, current Senator, Jill Carter from Baltimore City. Jill, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. So let me just say this. I, I mean, we haven't had a chance really to talk too much about this, but Across the Aisle is supposed to be about issues and not working, not worrying about the politics of it, but and the partisanship and the hyperpartisanship that's gripping Annapolis, quite frankly, these days, and certainly Washington. It's been, yeah, it's pretty bad. But I just want to say before we get started, we start, I want to get into kind of how you got into politics and your, and we're going to talk about a lot of issues, but there are very few people that I have met in my political journey, which thankfully is over from the elected, from the elected side that in my opinion, typify across the aisle than you. Um, you, I, I just, and I say this, and I don't say this about everybody, you can, I can assure you that you always looked at the substance of the issue, that you did not, you tried to put the politics, leave the politics at the, at the door and just focus on what you believe to be the right law, whether I or anybody else agreed with you or not, like it was always about the law for you, which I, I think makes you an Excellent legislator. That's just my my editorial opinion here. Can you tell to some of these other people on the radio and stuff? Sure, I'm happy to say. <laughs> and listen, I've, I've been asked that before. You know this. I mean, I, you and I have served together for a long time, and I disagree. You and I disagreed, disagreed vehemently on issues, and then we went and had a beer or whatever afterwards, and uh, and argued some more. But uh, you and I always knew that we were coming from, you know, a place where we cared about the law and we're trying to do the right thing. Which is what else can you? possibly ask for in a legislator. I don't know. So I think it's interesting because even though I hate labels, you always have to have labels. So, you know, especially in recent years, I'm definitely labeled a progressive Democrat. And it's true. I do identify way more with progressives than any other category of, of Democrats or a politician. But the people often closest to me in the legislature have not been progressive Democrats. In fact, oftentimes they haven't been Democrats at all. Um, and so I think that what you're talking about is true because um, when you're having a debate with someone, um, you have to hear and understand the the logic and the integrity of their arguments, so to speak. And I think that when you when you when you take a position, and it's not just a partisan position, it's not just a because I'm supposed to do this, and you can actually back up the reasons that why you take the position. I think even the person arguing against you, the other side, respects respects your position. You would hope so. I mean, I, I think that's 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 more Pollyannish than I think Annapolis is right now. I really do. Like I I I hear. I mean, I certainly remember criticisms leveled at me, and I hear it about you or Mike Hoff or whoever. And it's like you know, all these people. Bob Cassidy is a great example. I mean, he and I disagreed on almost. That's not even true. We disagreed on everything. Like on a lot of issues, we found ourselves coming from different places. But there was never. I mean, people would whip him up, but he was just trying to do the right thing that he believed was the right, you know, he thought the law should be a certain way. It wasn't, it wasn't because people were Democrats or Republicans or whatever. He just had a legal philosophy. And I mean, I don't, you know. People have many people, many, many, many people, particularly women and progressive advocates for different issues have asked me how on earth I can stand the Judicial Proceedings Committee because of people historically like Cassidy, like Huff, like you, frankly, like this male kind of 
testosterone that they feel like dominates this committee or has for a long time. And what I, what I think is interesting, I mean, is there stuff that going on with, with um, race and sex and all kinds of dynamics in the legislature and the committee? Of course, it's the committees in the legislature represent also what is in the world. But what's interesting is that um, I have not felt that way because I'm, I'm in the heat of battle, so to speak, and I'm not thinking about um, testosterone or, or that. I guess that what I'm saying is um, in the JPR committee, we argue, we debate, we have these knockdown, drag out fights. But at the end of the day, I, with, with rare exception, with rare exception, um, I think we come out of it even if we don't agree with the other side, having a respect for that position. And so that is kind of what I'm trying to say about the partisan politics. Like, I'm clear, clear that um, on some of the issues that, you know, the Republican side, you know, or their position is going to be different. It doesn't, I don't have a dislike of them because they have a different position. I think sometimes even in our own party, there's real uh, disdain for disagreement within the party. So I guess my point is I'm tr I'm ex I'm trying to explain that it's in some ways easier to to operate across the aisle in a body where your party happens to be majority right. and where you don't agree a hundred percent with everybody on your own side. It's just crazy though. It's like I like I leave and. I mean, the first thing that I, I remember Will kind of like watching Senator Smith, you know, Chairman Smith, watching as I was the chair and I was, I would tell him some of these crazy things that some of these advocacy groups were doing. And I thought they were getting, I thought they were getting way too big for their britches, to be perfectly honest. And mostly these kind of new age progressive advocacy groups. And then the first thing that happens first year is the ACLU comes out and calls Will Smith a white supremacist. The first black chairman of the Judicial Proceedings Committee gets called a white supremacist, which is like the most asinine thing. I mean, I'm no, I mean, I'm going to listen. I, I know you won't say so, but I will. I mean, like groups like the ACLU, it just, it's so crazy. You and I've been so there I, for I so long. I don't think just that's nuts. exactly what they did. They, they, they picketed they his house. He, well, in their view. So this was about police reform. Right. And we know that the long history of policing, there's been racism in the tradition of policing and they were very eager to get reforms done. And so anybody they perceived as standing in the way of those reforms in any way, shape, or form, they were, they were their, saying of their ideas they, that of reform. person was um, following kind of a white supremacist um, ide ideology. So my point is- I, I know you didn't I do this. I'm just think, saying these guys were like- I think they called him that. I think they were suggesting that, you know, they had issues with it. I'm not, I don't, I, you know what? I don't want to get in this debate. No, no, no. It's not even a debate. I'm just, it's my own editorial comment to say that. I mean, it's like, I remember when we, you and I were first elected, like we, I don't remember the names the of the people. Committee, were you there when um, some people um, put up a blog and put pig faces on all of us and called us all pigs because we didn't support, I think it was over the protective order, changing the standard of proof from clear convincing to preponderance. And that took a couple years to get through. And when it didn't get through initially, um, a, a, an advocacy group put pig faces on all of us um, and called us all pigs and really bad that. stuff, um, especially the chairman, especially Larry, but all of us. Yeah. We were, I mean, this was up for years. Like when I Googled myself for years, I, this, this pig face would come up. And um, 
But it was interesting because even in a situation like that, I understand that advocates for wanting um, to, 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 to really make a difference in domestic violence, which is a horrible thing that nobody supports domestic violence, right? Of course. Nobody is supportive of that. But you have to be balanced and you have to be reasonable about it. And the truth is, and we've now changed the standard to preponderance, and that's fine, that's the law. But what I was interested in and what Lou Simmons and others, and even Jerron Levi, I remember, because she was the other woman. She, I mean, you may not remember her. Yeah, delegate even, from even, first of all, Baltimore Kat, City. Kathleen DeMay could never be considered to be someone that's anti-women or, or pro-domestic violence, for sure. But even she, it took a while because what the issue was is the advocates weren't producing evidence that orders were being denied because people weren't meeting the burden. So we were looking at the efficacy of why it should be changed, should it be changed. We didn't want people to be denied that should get it, but we, the, first of all, very few were being denied. But secondly, when they were being denied and the reasons were given, it wasn't because they failed to meet the, the heavy burden. It was usually because um, there was no um, um, credibility, or credibility issues, or there was no statutory basis for relief. Right, it wasn't because of a burden issue, but that's an example yeah. of how it's real easy and popular to say like, "Oh, I'm pro women, anti domestic violence. I'm happy to change the standard." But when it comes to the law, you have to look at what's going to be fair to both sides because just somebody because somebody's accused, it doesn't mean that they did it. Right, I remember. That's fine. I don't. I don't remember the the blogs of the pig. I remember. I don't know if you remember this or not, but the death penalty debate. This is before we did away with the death penalty in Maryland. Um, I was in the house. I wasn't a player on on you know. I was like a young guy on the committee. I wasn't wasn't particularly influential, but uh, I really hadn't made up my mind on what I thought about it at the time. I hadn't you know. It's a it was a more of a I don't want to say cocktail party conversation because that's disrespectful, but like it just wasn't something that was on my radar screen as a twenty something year old. You know whether or not we should do away with the death penalty. And there was this young blogger who's now the the majority leader in the house who the juice i'd never heard of this guy before this guy uh, what's he, it? uh david moon he was the juice he was, the, the, right, juice. the juice and he puts up a blog with my face in it with a bullseye around my face in an electric chair just simply because i wouldn't commit to doing away with the death penalty i was like I'm gonna beat the shit out of this kid, whoever this is. <laughs> I even met him one day, but you know now he's the majority. And now, yeah, I know. now he's the majority, and now I get in big trouble for Who doing knew? that. Like, this but... is, he's super powerful, and you know. But actually, I mean, it was like crazy. It's like, who are these? You know, it's like, I don't know. It's a longer conversation. I know you and I have done this over whiskey before, but like these advocacy groups, and it doesn't even matter right wing, left wing. It doesn't matter. It's like they come down. I don't know. We can tell war stories, but I remember there was one in particular. I you'll like the story. So, Sarah, remember Sarah David was my chief of staff. She works at the state prosecutor's office, and she's like, she says to me, "I don't want you to take this meeting." It was this group, and I'm Jewish, as you know, and there was this group called Jews for Justice, which I'm sure you my people. I know. <laughs> in theory, they're my people, but whatever. So they come down, and there was this guy that was running against me. I can't even remember the guy's name, and it was all, and they can't. And I'm like, no, no, I'll take the meeting. And Sarah says, no, 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 don't take the meeting. I'm like, okay, I'll take it. Just to see, just for fun, let me take the meeting. I mean, these are like the wackiest of of, of my constituents at the time. No offense to them. And uh, actually, a little bit of offense. But they come into my office with a list. And they go, 
senators, Mr. Chairman, we demand. And they, they, this list of 10, they're 10 and they have a list that says our 10 demands the Jews for justice. I was like, all right. Do you, you remember they were? I don't remember. But I, the only thing I remember about it is I said, well, first of all, listen, I'm Jewish and I'm for justice, but I'm not sure like you can come into my office and like make demands, but we'll take a look. So I'm like, just give me a second, give me a second, give me. And I read through the list of them like, yeah, these are really fucking stupid. Like, I'm not <laughs> doing any of these things. I was like, you got to like a, a list B or something. And I mean, Sarah was just like, like, come on, guys. I mean, it was like, let rapists out of jail, let murderers out of jail, and this, let this one out of jail. Sure it wasn't it was quite all, that uh, In my head, that's how I remember it. <laughs> anyway. All right, let's double back. We're here to talk about you. I, let me Let me take 10 steps back. I want people to know, because you've been in office for a long time. Oh. You've been doing public service for a long time. Like, take it, take me all the way back Most to, of my life. I'm right. It's true. <laughs> Most of my adult life to some extent. But, you and I served together back um, in the night. Tell me how this all started with you. So strange. First of all, I had no interest whatsoever in, public, in being in politics or public service. Um, I did have people close to my family. Um, Iris Reeves and Vera Hall were my mother's best friends, and my adopted aunt, so to speak, and they were both in politics. In fact, um, Vera Hall was the first black woman chair of the Democratic Party from Maryland. And um, so, I mean, we always supported them and candidates we liked, but in terms of, um, believe it or not, believe it or not, I consider myself kind of an introvert that likes to be behind the scenes and not in the public eye. Go figure, you know, I'm always in the public eye. But um, basically, there was a redistricting in 2002 and a man named Robert Clay, who some people know because he um, was shot in the head and there's a controversy at the time about whether he was killed or committed suicide. Um, he had this brilliant idea. I've been working with him with minority contractors um, that I run for office. And my first response is, are you crazy? Have you missed the part that I can't stand really being in the public that much? And he was like- When was this? What, what, 2002. We 2002. need somebody in Annapolis that understands minority business issues the legislature, the House of Delegates had just passed a bill that included white males in the Minority Business Enterprise Program. It was, they based it um, geographically, so in Appalachia. And so they felt strongly that that's kind of distorting the whole idea. So you have to run because we need people down there that um, understand the needs for my, real minority businesses. So um, we came to Annapolis and we, we protested that bill and then we went to the Senate, and Clarence Blount was the chair of the Senate committee at the time, and he chose to not pass the bill. We were happy. And so after that, there was this kind of like mantra, you got to run, Jill. And I was like, ugh. So literally, this is kind of a, I think, interesting story. I go to the meeting, and it's literally um, the night that's the deadline to file for the House of Delegates, and we also have a, con a, a minority contractors meeting. I go to the meeting, and they're already there postured to make sure I have my application and I and they take me to Annapolis. I get to the Annapolis Board of Elections office like five minutes or so before the deadline to file for the office. My plan is this, you know what, to appease these people, I'm just turn this thing in, but tomorrow I'm withdrawing, right? And oddly enough, the next morning, apparently the names were posted in the paper or somewhere, um, among the calls I get that morning are my aunt, Vera Hall, um, and she's like, Jill, I'm so proud of you. You're going to be so great. And I'm like, are you serious? You're kidding. Oh my God. You think I'd be good at this? And she's like, who's the Senator at the time? Um, uh, is it Barbara? 
Oh, so the race was then Barbara Hoffman, Lisa Gladden. That so I won oh, the right. year that they challenged each other. I was not on either one of their ticket, and that was the whole way I got in. So I run. Um, I remember Vera did say, "It's unlikely you're going to win your first time out, but if a miracle happens and you win, I think you'd be fantastic. Go for it. You have nothing to lose." So I run, and um, I don't know anything. I really know nothing about politics. People are like, "Call Lisa, call Barbara, see if you can get on a ticket." And so I called Lisa, and Lisa's like, absolutely not. No. Our ticket is formed. No. Go on your own merit. But I would hope that you wouldn't go with Barbara Hoffman, my opponent. So I'm like, so let me get this straight. I don't know nothing about politics, but just saying I'm going to do nothing to help you, but don't go with anybody else? Are you serious? So I meet with Barbara Hoffman, but I don't feel like she's got Sandy Rosenberg, and I don't feel like that's the right ticket for me either. So I ran on my own. And I kind of like shot through the middle and I got the most votes of anybody running for delegate. So who was it? Was and my best, so my lifelong friend, Wendell Phillips. Wendell. Who I totally that wanted to serve year. with. Um, I totally he believed. losing that? He lost. He so lost. I was first, then Nathaniel Oakes. Right. Then Sandy Rosenberg. And listen to this. On night of election, Wendell was beating Sandy and then Sandy came in with like 200 absentee ballots and he won. So Wendell was out. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, and then yeah, Wendell was part of our WizKids group. He uh, he and I came in together in '98 with Paul Carlson and Bill Cole and that whole crew. Wendell, um, again, Darren lifelong Swain. friend. His father, um, the uh, the uh, pastor of Heritage United Church of Christ, was you know involved in the civil rights struggle to some extent with my father. I lived in route between Wendell's house and the church, so every day. Reverend Phillips would ride his motorcycle down my street. It's like, that's how, so we just grew up. In fact, I don't know if Wendell let me tell this, but I think it's been long enough. Wendell's the first boy I ever kissed. Okay. <laughs> the double dare. I'm going to text him the second we're done with this, by the way. <laughs> and Carlson. Um, all right, so you get you get elected in 2002, and I know that. I was to say, I didn't want him to lose. Right. <laughs> no, and I remember, yeah, I was, I was very fond of Wendell, too. I was trying to get him to, because... I helped get him, but I was, there were a bunch of us that were working with, you know, because the Jewish Times was an important endorsement back then. And he got that endorsement. You know, we worked really hard behind the scenes to try to help him make sure he got that endorsement, which he did. But then we were begging him, like, because it came really late to, like, get it and circulate and circulate and circulate. And he just didn't have enough resource, didn't have time. I don't remember what the, what the issue was, but I think that could have made the difference. That, that was that was a big loss for the General Assembly, not having Wendell, but it is what it is. Um, I like I like the fact that it, we broke some news here that you made it, that you kissed Wendell Phillips. Anyway, so you get elected in 2002. I know this because you and I were somewhat near each other on the House Judiciary Committee under Joe Valerio. And you know, so take me from there to where you are now, and then we're going to get to some issues. So I think that I don't, I do not know anything about the legislature, right? And I remember going there. I think I didn't go to the orientation because I was like busy or something. So I get there, and it's like the first day, and then I think we don't get called. And Valerio calls the committee together because, like, for introductions, I literally was shocked to learn that we had to go there every day. Like I thought, oh, it's 90 days. Like you probably go to the floor and then maybe meet in committee like when there's an issue. I did not know it was all day, every day for the 90 days. I didn't know that, but I learned. And I didn't know that either when I, I was elected. I, I didn't know shit thought, when I was elected. <laughs> I was like, 
I thought I was there to champion minority business. I'm like, right. I hope I don't let people down. You know, I know in the campaign, there are a lot more issues because you have all those um, things to fill out, all those surveys and everything. And you've now you, you become an expert on every issue because you need to learn everything they're asking you about. Right. But again, I think probably minority um, issue business is going to be my stuff. And I don't really know what I'm interested in. But I'm clear very quickly um, as a person that was practicing law and in the criminal defense realm, there's a lot wrong here. Uh, we need to get some expungements for people who don't even have convictions. That was my first thing. Like people who haven't been convicted, they ought to be able to get an expungement. Why does it stay on their record? It's ridiculous. That was kind of like the, one of the first things I championed. And then later on, it was like lead in the water in the school. But here's the thing. These things the I felt so strongly were right. I was so clear they were right. I couldn't believe I couldn't get them passed. I, sh I couldn't believe it. I was like, how in the world could anybody be against removing lead from public school water? How could that ever be something that people don't support? How could like a non-conviction being expunged be a problem? I couldn't understand the legislature. I could not understand people not supporting those things. And I, I don't know. I, I, I'm a very competitive person used to with preparation and hard work being able to win. And I think that's the lawyer part. Like in law, you usually can if you're right. Right. So I think for a while it became kind of a challenge to me. I got to figure out how to win this, win yeah. here. And um, of course, you know, it was so hard to figure I, that out. I learned years. though that the house always won back in those days and nope. Um, every now and then like Valerio would give me some weak watered down, nothing of a bill to pass, but the big stuff I wanted to pass never did happen. Right. Did he, and it always said Carter, Valeria. So my first, my first bill, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't admit this, but my very first bill that I passed, I honestly, somebody asked me that. I'm like, I have no idea. I still to this day have no idea what it <laughs> what did. It, it had something to do with medical malpractice. It had the healthcare arbitration off. It, it was a tiny little nothing bill, but for whatever reason, Joe didn't want to do it. So Joe says, you know, he's like, delicate jerky to me. Why don't you put, put your old name here but next to old Joe? I'm like, what's it doing? He mumbled something at me, and I'm like, okay. So we, so the bill passes, obviously, out of the House Judiciary. And I honestly was just not focused on it. And I'm having to go over to the Senate for my very first House bill that gets over to the Senate. And Walter Baker is the chairman over there. I'm like, fuck, this guy is supposed to be scary. So sorry for the cursing, but whatever. It's my podcast. But so we go, I go over there and it's the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee. And I'm like, Joe, you got to come over with me. Like, I don't know what this bill does. Like, I cannot answer questions about this freaking thing. This is your bill with my name on it. I don't know why either of those things is the case. Anyway, so we go over there and Joe answers all the questions. And finally, Walter you know, Chairman Baker says, he goes, Mr. Chairman, can I ask you one? Remember, you had him. Did you ever meet Walter? Deep Southern accent from season. He goes, can I ask you one question? And Joe's like, you know, yes. He goes, he goes does your little parrot talk? <laughs> I was like, I hate this place so much. <laughs> and that was my very first bill. Valerio Zirkin bill. It's a rude awakening when you first realize how laws get passed and the politics of, of the legislature. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you, 2002 to 2006, at some point you left to go work. my work. first term. So yeah, that was the early days. But you did one I, term, right? Can I talk right? about your friends real quick? Um, so. Which one? Also, you know, I'm about to tell you. So early in my career, another thing I noticed was this thousands and thousands of people getting arrested without charges. It literally was something I was like, oh my God, I have to sound the alarm about this. 
going to tell people and they're going to fix it, right? So I tell people and they're like, what's the problem? I'm like, see, it's it's violating people's constitutional rights because you're arresting them for with no merit, no probable cause, no no warrant. So that law says you've got to have these things to make an arrest. People didn't get it for the most part. So I started like really pushing this issue. It turned out that Martin O'Malley was the mayor. Um, it was ostensibly his policy pressuring the police department to make all these arrests, even if they were unwarranted. And he wanted to become the mayor, the governor. I honestly, political novice, I didn't really understand the politics of it. I truly thought once O'Malley hears this horrible thing is happening, he's going to fix it. He's going to stop. This was kind of like the, uh, the stop New the York, illegal arrest. This was like the New York, like no zero tolerance. So stuff. what had happened was, um, O'Malley took a personal disdain toward me because he looked at me as like a gnat trying to destroy his career. And because he then grew in power, I, I did then find myself ultimately marginalized very much so in the House of Delegates, basically just like mistreated, uh, treated like I had no rights to be there. And that's how I kind of suffered for a long time. Um, and then I finally got out. This is in your second term? Second. And then I stayed for three terms. You stayed so, in the house for three terms before you got out? Yeah, so Eight. then I left. To be fair, though, on and look, I, I think that there was a lot of issues with zero tolerance, obviously. I mean, you and I you and I share a lot of, lot of thoughts about the constitutional policing and all those other things. It was an awkward it, – it, it's, it's, a, it's a balance, though. It's, like, very difficult. I remember when, when Martin was running for president, he and I sp spoke before – It finally came back to bite him. Well, yes, and yes. Rightly so. Wait. But wait, wait, to be fair, though, the issue is, though, for, for this I remember talking to him before one of his debates and we were talking about this and I thought it was just kind of cool that somebody I knew was running for president. But but I would like and I said to him, like, you know, there is another side to it, right? Like you're getting you're getting beaten up about it. But but it's a balancing test. Like it's a, it's kind of like here and maybe maybe it was over here. But that being said, I mean, there was a result to it. I mean, I remember like Baltimore City had like a hundred murders, a hundred and ten, a hundred and twenty. Dude, the and reason it was so high is because people were getting arrested for nothing. Right, but so it's like it swiveled too far. You're, it you're definitely swiveled not too far. The but like serious crime and criminals, because you're pressuring the police to get these stats to make these arrests. But you know, it, frankly, I, I don't agree with the policy. You know what? Like I said, we can disagree on policy all day and not hate each other. The issue there was that. I was treated with so much hatred and disdain. Like, I was treated like I intentionally set out to ruin this person, this powerful person. I did not. I didn't even really know that it was going to be taken the way it was taken. At some point, I'm going to get you guys back together I thought again. he was going to, we were never together, but <laughs> he was going to, like, accept that it was true and just fix it. That's truly what I thought. All right, so let's move on from that. So then, you know, I spent some time in the House of Delegates. Um, there was a little period of time there when he left, and I, I did run for mayor, but it was a terrible campaign for oh, many right. reasons. I remember that. So I had decided for my short time in the House of Delegates, the only thing I can do to fix Baltimore is mayor. It's where all the power is. Because I saw how the delegation just did whatever the mayor said. So I said, well, if I'm the mayor, I can not only can control the resources and the policies, but I got the the legislate the delegation doing what I want them to do too. So who I thought that, that was the only who won answer. That? Was that Stephanie or was that was that Sheila Dixon? That was Sheila. So that was a year that Kiefer Mitchell ran. I ran. Andre Bunley ran. Two thousand seven. So oh, right. Um, but I should have done a lot better than I did. But uh, 
there were forces beyond my control that I didn't know. I was still a political novice. So I didn't know how much I didn't. And, and this is stuff we don't have to get into, but I'll just touch on it. I didn't know how much like leaders in this party did not like me. Right. So they sent people to me to intentionally kind of derail my, my campaign at the outset. I know now I didn't know then, but there's no way I should have done as terribly as I did. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to fast forward. You ran for, I forgot that you ran for mayor. You ran for mayor. Came back to the House of Delegates because it was in an off election year. I stayed there. Until, stayed there for a while. Yeah. Then went on to work in the city. You worked. You worked. I resigned uh, from the House of Delegates and I went to work as the director of civil rights for Baltimore City. That's right. I did that for a couple of years. And then um, Nathaniel Oaks had become the senator for the district. Lisa had stepped down. Of course, she waited and did it like three days after I resigned. And I think it was intentional. Like she didn't want me to be in the Senate. So when she thought I was out of the way, it was safe for her to leave. So then um, Nat goes to the Senate and then he gets indicted. And literally the day that the news comes down that he's even been indicted, my phone is blowing up. I'm in a meeting actually with the mayor and her people about stuff. And people are like, Jill, you got to run. Jill, you got to run. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Did you miss the part when I was finished with that part of my life? But people pressured me to run because they felt like, um, one, I could win. And there was like a lot of dynamics going on. Some people thought Sheila, Mayor Pugh, thought Dixon was going to run and use it as a platform to pivot into mayor because she'd only lost by a little bit to her. And then O'Malley's son-in-law had moved into the district. He's 27. He'd never done any real political work. But, you know, he was a young white boy. He was a real white guy. He's really, uh, you know, engaging to people who thought he was charming. So people, a lot of people didn't want to see him win. And, and I didn't want to see him win. <laughs> So Baltimore City politics. Like, this is like run. hardcore. Like I've tried to keep this podcast about policy. We're gonna get there, but like totally this is Baltimore City want politics. To run for the Senate, but I'm. I've. It's turned out that I've been very, very happy. I did. You are. All right. Well, good. Well, now we're gonna move forward. I don't know if that's necessarily true all the time. <laughs> so again, I'm beating my head against the wall in the House of Delegates on issues. Right. Come to the Senate and the stuff that I was like you know, tortured over, is now popular. Expungement, even beyond non-convictions, now we're expunging felonies. I mean, we're just, we're, we're haphazardly doing it. I don't really agree with everything we're doing, but we're, we're, we're expungement is no longer um, an exotic concept. Um, we had police reform. Agree or disagree, it was something that needed to happen. Something needed to happen for a long time. Nothing did happen for a long time. I beat my head against the wall with Christopher Brown, Baltimore County, you remember him. He was the senior ROTC football player strangled to death by an off-duty officer back in 2012. And that was one of the things that made me want to leave the House of Delegates when, like, the humanity of Christopher Brown wasn't kind of viewed. We, we, we had all your bills, Bobby, all these cute little white kids that had these problems, being bullied, being whatever, and we always passed the laws for them, right? That was 2017. But here I have a little black guy, <laughs> a little black kid, and he's killed and, oh, no, we can't do that. Can't, can't, can't see his humanity. So I left the House of Delegates in large part because I was frustrated. But I come back to the Senate, and all of a sudden, everything that I was being, like, ignored for and treated badly for is now popular. So that's, I felt like it was the right time for me to be in the Senate. Well, you came back, and was I the chair when you came back? You were my chair, yeah. I just became chair. You must have asked for me. Did you ask for me? Of course I asked for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm never going to escape. At the yeah, now you're there. Now you're a lifer. You're gonna grow roots there, like Joe. Um, 
the uh, so fast forward to today. Let, let, let's fast forward a little bit because I don't want to. You know, we. I know we, I could talk. And we're gonna do. Listen, we're gonna myself. We're gonna do this again. Uh, but I think it's important. I think it's great for people to hear how how individuals get involved in politics. Right? You were you, you were not even really an advocate. You know, you weren't some activist. You weren't some staffer. You were a lawyer. I should you were say, help. and and real quick. Of course, people in Baltimore and across Maryland knew my father had been a civil your father, rights right? Leader. Civil rights activist, and civil so rights leader. In my blood, right. was justice, equality, advocacy for what's right. right. But that didn't—I didn't know that was the legislature, <laughs> you know. So, I, I just again, I just think it's important. And let me just also say because, like, again, I keep saying, you know, I keep looking up here, and it's across the aisle because. Like your best friend in the General Assembly, other than me, your best friend in the General Assembly, at least on JPR, and I'm going to say this, and all the little activists will go screaming to the hills, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, is Mike Huff. I mean, in my time as as chairman of the Senate, when Mike and I disagreed, he still was there to help pass the right law. When you and I disagreed, you still were there to help make sure to pass the right law. I mean, Bob Cassidy, the most conservative guy on our committee. Right. I mean, by far, I'll never forget when he came to me on some, I don't remember what the bill was, but he said, he says, Bobby, he goes, can I, can I talk to you for a second? I said, yeah, he goes, and he puts his little glasses on, like he, like he's about ready to, to do his thing. And he goes, can you just look at page 16 lines, 10 through whatever? And I'm like, yeah, he goes, he goes, he read very detailed. He wrote everything. And he goes, he goes, listen, this bill is one big piece of shit, but if you're going to pass this, which it appears you're going to, can you at least get this out? Because this is, this looks like it was written by a child. And he's like, and I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. That makes no sense. I mean, it's like, that's the way our committee was, right? I mean, multiple, and you and Huff did that better as a team than anybody. I mean, it was like, a, it was watching the two of you go back and forth, whether you agreed with each other or disagreed with each other. I always said was the greatest thing I saw in the legislature. It just was like Democrat, progressive, Republican, conservative, I guess, and fighting together, not together, whatever, on every last word that was in a bill that was going to become part of a book that nobody's going to remember whose bill it was. Nobody's going to remember whose idea it was. Nobody's going to care. It's just something that's going to get used in court or used in our budget or whatever. And it mattered that much to you guys. I mean, it was great. And me too. You know, Huff helped tremendously on some things I thought were super important. And, you know, I'm still getting a lot of heat for the fact that I endorsed Michael Huff for county executive for Frederick County. Which is ridiculous. I thought he would be a good county executive. But not only that, um, people don't know what goes on, um, you know, how how we make the donuts or how we mix things up. It's hard for people to understand in discussing the details how there were often times there was not one ally I had on the committee for any for some things. I'll tell you one of the things, ghost guns. I believed, and nobody cared when I believed it, that we should have a distinction between a seller of a ghost gun and a kid that merely possesses it or got the parts or whatever. In fact, A.G. Anthony Brown talked about his son getting the parts on the internet. That person should not be held the same culpability to a person that's intentionally selling for profit knowing what's going to happen, right? So nobody cared when I brought that up. So I went to Huff and I asked him to help argue it and he did. And and it was the right thing to do. So that's just one teeny example. But... um. You know, again, people don't understand. I guess for me personally, I am much more comfortable knowing what someone's true position is and trying to figure out how to debate it or change it if I need to change it. 
um, as opposed to the hide the ball. Like, I say I want this, but this isn't really what I'm going for, so to speak. Or just kind of like this, the way you know this, you may not want to say it, but the way that sometimes um, some of our leaders do things, like we have to do something about ghost guns. They don't care about the details of what we do about right. the ghost guns. Just being able to say we tackled ghost guns this session. And so it is true that Huff and myself and you and others um, were more interested into in, in, in having the better policy as opposed to just saying we did something. Right. I remember, uh, you know, there, you know, it was a good example of this. And it's, it's one of the more painful experiences that I had in my time in the General Assembly. And it was that it was that. Um, I mean, I kind of mock it now. It's not mockable, but like it had to do with the uh, long guns and and antique gun bill, the uh, Vanessa Atterbury's bill, like before I left. And that uh, there was a woman who came before our committee. Poor woman whose husband had gotten killed. Whose husband had gotten killed at the Capitol Gazette. And I mean, this woman was Facebooking, Facebooking, Facebooking. You know, and you 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 know, you feel sorry. You know, it's horrible. You want to hear all these stories and everything. And we're listening to the story. It's like this woman is killing me because I'm not doing everything that's in the bill. Because what was in the bill originally was awful. I mean, would have put people as would have made felons of people who were doing nothing more than going duck hunting. Now I'm I'm from Pikesville. I don't do duck hunting, but like I don't think just because you go duck hunting with a gun and somebody hands you their gun that somehow that should be a felon. This is the original version of this bill. And then we're listening to the story, and the Capitol Gazette shooting had nothing to do with this bill. This bill was about secondary transfers of long guns, meaning you hand it to, you give it to somebody else. The Capital Gazette shooter had purchased their gun. It literally had zero to do with it. Um, and so, you know, there were a million things going on. And in addition, Mike Bush was sick, right? So he he's dying. I mean, he died at the end of that session. I remember. Do you remember? And so the session actually got cut short. So like, you know, as as we always do, we have 11 men. I'm I'm working actually. I was working on Grace's law and and something that that Reedy needed. And so there was like some really big things going on. And that bill, I remember asking the question in the hearing, I'm like, "How many people have been killed by a secondarily transferred long gun?" And the answer was zero. In the history of our state, they couldn't think of one person who had been murdered by a secondarily transferred long gun. That doesn't mean you don't do something about the background check. But it didn't rise to the level of of There's like. There's just a general. It was just like we got to do something for all guns. That's oh, right. We we're really the truth is the position is we're against guns, so we don't really care. They didn't care. What whatever results in less guns, right or wrong, good or bad, we want less guns. We we don't believe in guns. That's right. The so I'm like, you're you're against criminalizing people who are repeat violent offenders, and you can have that debate. But you're for making a much more significant felony for people who have done literally nothing except for hand something to somebody at a shooting range or a school. I mean, it had all kinds of problems with like skeet shooting and Olympic shooting. I mean, the bill was a mess. I mean, it was a disaster of a bill that would have literally made criminals of people who were the coaches of Olympic teams if they were in Maryland. I mean, it was it was really bad. And so we had to I, fix it. I, I we had to the, fix the this long debate about it. I remember. Um, that was my first session, and I. So this is so this is the gossip we don't get into. So I remember I reached out to Vanessa Atterbury at because I I listened all session to you Huff and others debate this. I stayed out of it because 
I didn't care that much about this. I didn't care either, and I don't know so, shit about it. it was like, I remember I reached out to Atterbury after to tell her that having listened to all the arguments, I thought I could work with her over the interim to help her come up with something that would be palatable to the committee. But she she was so like adamant that I was one of you against her that she wouldn't even talk to me right. about it. Well, she she wanted a piece of you on the uh, on the marriage bill. Don't get me started on the marriage because we have this epidemic. Of people marrying right. people that are underage, the right solution to that is to have some type of a top bar on the age someone can marry a certain at a certain age, in my opinion. But we don't actually have many people getting married, period, right. much less underage people. And then when we have underage people, we don't have like 16-year-olds marrying 40-year-olds. But that's something that can be stopped, right? But to just say people can't get married, as we have, even if they have had children together... Right. And even if they've been pretty much on their own independent, raising their own family for a while, even if they have abuse in their household, they can't leave and marry their boyfriend. So I don't like that law and I never will. I remember the I remember the debate on that. I, I remember like I can't remember which side we had passed. The Senate had passed a bill saying you couldn't get married until you were. I don't remember. 15, Eight. 16, oh. 16. And they said 18. So we're in the last day of session. And I'm like. I mean, everybody's screaming at each other, and I'm like, I'm like, there seems to be a safe landing point at 17. Like, everyone will be a little bit upset. I think there were like we just five do that. people who had gotten married <laughs> under the age of, right. it was of a, 17 in Maryland. The same thing. You know what I mean? For 10 years, like right. five people. It's the difference between doing laws because they're meaningful and impactful for some, because like some of the things you were talking about before, like creating expungement opportunities for people who didn't have the the ability to clean their records is meaningful. Having a background check on an antique gun, you know, a musket or something, you know, like as if somehow somebody's going to be like, don, 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 you know, when that's never occurred, at least not since the revolution, you know, it's like at, at the end of the day, it just, it's the difference between bills that do something and bills that look really good on Twitter. I mean... Now, on the gun debate, I think you really do have to at least appreciate the difference when it comes to black people. Can I tell you a quick story? So my mother died in 2016, and we're going through her house, and we find some antique World War II gun of my dad's, and it's like totally that. And so my sister is like, hey, Jill, take this home. I'm like, hell no. I'm not going to ruin my whole life. You're a 10-year felon now. <laughs> my point is like my level of fear of being anywhere near a gun that wasn't registered for me. I was clear. My life is over. But my point is like it, it would have been wrong for me to carry it home if I wasn't supposed to. But I was my level of fear of, of the penalties was real. Like my it life is be. over. They made a 10-year felony out of that. So, I mean, that's what... Anyway, let's but move on. But that's why I don't agree with this new mentality. I don't know if it's new. That, that once you only deal with penalties on the person in possession of a gun, regardless of whether they're using the gun, and not dealing with the sellers, the dealers, and the traffickers of the guns. And the people use them in crimes, the right? I mean, the people the who shoot yes. somebody, because, that's the person you, know, you want can, to get. I can, be a, I can come to visit you know, my cousin Tony's house and there could be like four unregistered guns in that house. And if there's any type of a raid or whatever, or somebody's arrested, that's found. I'm in proximity. I'm technically in mere possession. And I know the state's attorneys always say, oh, it'll be worked out in court. We wouldn't prosecute that. That's not true. All day long, I've seen people, mainly young black people, 
prosecuted for being in proximity to an unregistered gun. That's all the time we have for today's episode of Across the Aisle podcast with Senator Bobby Zirkin. Please head to part two for more of this episode. Thank you again for listening to Across the Aisle podcast with Senator Bobby Zirkin. Thank you.